With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. If you were like me and were one of the attendees at the World Ag Expo, you were one of 108,233 people to explore the grounds of the International Agri Center for that three-day event. The Expo welcomed folks from 49 states and 56 countries, all to check out the latest and greatest in agricultural technology and to make some business transactions. Brian and I were broadcasting live from one of our affiliates at the EM Tharp booth, and we had a great time. My favorite part was getting to see all of the top 10 new product winners. For more information on the event, you can visit worldagexpo.com. And now for today's headlines. The DWR announced increase in water deliveries. The Department of Water Resources last week announced an increase in the state water project allocations this year. The announcement comes as the state actively receives more rain and snow from the current storm. DWR now expects to deliver 35% of requested water supplies. That's up from 30% forecasted back in January, all to the 29 public water agencies across the state. That's an additional 210,000 acre-feet of water. Reclamation Regional Director Ernest Conant says, quote, while we're cautiously optimistic, we are also cognizant of the uncertainties that exist in the fluctuating nature of California's climate with the possibility that dry conditions will return. He added, quote, We received a much-needed dose of rain and snow in December and January that helped boost the water levels at our CVP reservoirs. The projected runoff from the snowmelt later this year will further benefit the state as we head into the summer months. However, we are all too aware of the precarious nature of recent weather patterns and must proceed prudently as we move through the water year, especially with below-average storage in the state's largest reservoir, Shasta. As of last week, reservoir levels were as followed. Trinity Reservoir was at 32% of storage capacity and 56% of the 15-year average, Shasta at 59% and 93% of average. Folsom at 54% and 111% of average, New Malone's at 44% and 77% of average, Millerton at 51% and 101% of average, and the San Luis Reservoir at 64% and 95% of average. There's more than a month that still remains in the state's wet season, and there's still uncertainty about a return to warm and dry conditions before the peak snowpack date of April 1. The DWR is scheduled to conduct the next Phillips Snow Station survey on March 1st. Stay tuned as we'll provide you with those updated numbers. And with more on this topic, here's Agnet West, Brian German. The timing of the increased water allocations is helpful for cotton growers. President and CEO of the California Cotton Jenners and Growers Association, Roger Isom, said it was a nice change of pace to get that much of a water allocation at this point in the year. The fact that it's at 35%, I think, exceeded everybody's expectations given the track record here over the last few years. But it's really, really good news. I mean, that's that's a good number. Could be, should be more, but we're going to take it. The other part of that is that, it, you know, it's it's not even March 1st yet, and they're making that announcement. And that's very helpful for us in terms of planting. Gives us some time to know, hey, this is what we've got, and this is what we can do. And that's that's helpful. Getting these late announcements in May, and that just, you know, it's too late. So we're happy about the number. 
we're happy that the announcement came out when it did, and we're going to keep our fingers crossed that, you know, these current storms are going to add to that, and maybe even, you know, a few more storms down the road, maybe we can even increase that more and increase the storage. I mean, that's the big thing, right? We've three years or four years of drought have really taken a toll on the big projects like Shasta and Trinity and, and that. So not only do we get a little more water to plant, a little more water to the cities, hopefully we can really get these reservoirs built back up to where they should be. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, we continue our coverage of the USDA's Ag Outlook Forum. During Thursday's session, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack moderated a panel on the agricultural workforce. One participant was Dr. Inez Hanaran, Executive Director of the Washington Tree Fruit Research Commission. She talked about mechanized harvesting for specialty crops. Um, I think uh, we have a very unique situation where the growers have always been very forward-thinking. And uh, over 50 years ago, they formed the organization, the Washington Tree Food Research Commission, with the goal of bringing automation and um, other things, uh, technology, to farms. Uh, for quite a few decades, uh, we weren't very successful. Um, but uh, we, the growers kept on pushing and one of the first things that they realized that they needed is uh, more modern varieties um, that are actually used, to, that, that can be actually grown in a manner that they can ultimately be harvested mechanically, mechanically assist and ultimately maybe with robots. And so we are in a very lucky situation that we have, a, have supported breeding programs that actually have that goal of producing uh, fruit uh, that are um, yeah that can be handled this way that has a nice side effect that these same fruit are also for example less uh, affected by sunburn an effect of climate change so it, it doesn't have to be one doesn't have to be at the detriment of the other so we have for example a very nice variety cosmic crisp that is climate friendly but it also lends itself to automation of harvest uh, the other thing that we often hear is like, okay, so but what about the safety of the workers? So one of the second things that we brought in is platforms. Very, it's very dangerous to operate ladders in an orchard. People can fall off. They have accidents. Uh, we now have, in the last 20 years, almost all the farms have uh, automated platforms, which makes it a lot easier, reduces the danger to the workers, and um, but also helps the productivity so the farmer can actually make more money. And this is like an intermediate step to getting more of these assistant programs. So we, we feel like a lot of these things, they're, they're kind of complementary of each other. And now looking forward, we want to bring sensors to orchards. We have a smart orchard uh, that we have set up to test this out for the growers. And we feel like we need to collaborate more on a national and international level. So nationally, we're, um, we're working together with the Western Growers Association to uh, yeah, to basically really get farm robots off 
into the, into the field, especially for harvest, which uh, is very important because more than 50% of all the money a farmer spends on special crops is spent on picking. And that we also realize we need to internationally collaborate because the problem of agriculture is really a worldwide problem. And so we, we've, we've partnered with European partners, uh, for example, in the, in, with, with Dutch partners, to work together and to make sure that we, yeah, we take advantage and we're very effective in, in using any source that we can to, yeah, to, to help farmers stay in business and to make sure that we have a secure food supply. When you talk about fruit that's uh, susceptible to being picked, uh, mechanically, what is it about the, 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 the fruit that makes it better or not as good for mechanical picking? Yeah, so the, it's, that's a very good question. So the first thing is you have to have typically a growing system where it's easier to access. So we call these fruiting wall systems. They're also really nice. They're easier for workers, of course, to pick as well, which is nice. And uh, then when you, if you want a fruit that is easier or suitable for mechanical harvest, usually you want it to be come off easier, uh, but at the right time, not at the wrong time, and uh, develop color or the quality parameters that you need in a, in a, you know, without any problems. But when you expose it to the environment, then you can have, uh, for example, sunburn, so you, don't, you need to have fruit that withstands this kind of thing. And then you often have mechanical damage that you that you have when you bring a machine that helps certain aspects. And so you need to make sure that that piece of fruit um, doesn't get damaged mechanically, but at the same time, of course, that it tastes wonderful so that people want to continue eating it. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service announced a proposed rule to amend animal disease traceability regulations. It would make electronic ID tags both visually and electronically readable. Rod Bain reports this is designed for certain cattle and bison undergoing interstate movement. Rapid traceability in the event of an animal disease outbreak in certain cattle and bison is the purpose behind a rule proposed by USDA now in the Federal Register and undergoing the public comment process. As USDA Chief Veterinarian Roseberry Sifford recently told state ag directors and commissioners, We are really excited about the opportunity to bring electronic identification into the requirements for cattle. I think it will really help us with regard to that response effort to be able to quickly work through a trade and to be able to identify animals and move to a response mode more quickly and efficiently. Record retention updates are also part of the proposed rule. Things that we did not change under this proposed rule, still allowing the other brands and those kinds of identification where the states agree to that. So a lot of the things still in place that I think you all find really valuable and at the same time helping us to move forward. Public comment on the rule is being accepted through March 22nd. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Rod. And USDA Chief Veterinarian Rosemary Sifford explains the proposed rule available for public comment on modifications to current animal disease traceability regulations. We did recently publish the updated proposed rule that was published on January 19th. Records retention requirement updates, just clarifying some of that language, but the most important piece is really around that electronic identification. We do think the changes will make it much easier for us to quickly identify cattle and bison and respond to outbreaks. We've been working very closely with all the states to work through those trace exercises and look for the opportunities that we have to improve, and this will just be another for us to continue to move down that path. It is currently open for comment. 
comment. We look forward to the comments and look forward to being able to move forward with the rule that meets everybody's needs. Now, APHIS, of course, is soliciting public comment on the proposal until March 22nd. If you're interested in making a comment, go to federalregister.gov. And Brazil's Agriculture and Livestock Ministry noted last week that beef exports to China were temporarily on hold. That's due to a case of mad cow disease that was confirmed in one of the northern states called Para. Reuters says the suspension is a part of the animal health agreement made between the two countries and likely won't last long, but it is a hit to the bottom line for the country's farmers as China is the top destination for Brazil's beef exports. Minister Carlos Farvaro said all measures are being taken immediately at each stage of the investigation and the matter is being handled with total transparency to guarantee Brazilian and global consumers the recognized quality of our meat. It was their Ag Defense Agency that confirmed the diseased case. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Why do we have GMOs? Actually, we've been modifying crops for thousands of years to prevent crop loss from pest and weather damage, to grow more food on less land, even to improve nutrition. Today, GMOs are developed for the same reasons. With genetic engineering, scientists can change and improve crops more easily and quickly. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. An alternative food source for pollinators. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Sorghum is a pollen-rich grass species cultivated for grain and forage. It looks similar to corn and can be an important food source for pollinators and other beneficial insects during times when pollen and nectar are scarce. Researchers from the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Agricultural Research Service and Oklahoma State University's Division of Agricultural Sciences and Natural Resources found that sorghum served as a pollen food source for bees, hoverflies, and earwigs. Additionally, when sorghum is infested with sorghum aphids, which are known to feed on all types of sorghum, large amounts of honeydew are produced as waste. The sugary byproduct could be an alternative to nectar for pollinators and predatory insects, including flies, bees, wasps, and ants. The study's findings show promise that grass species like sorghum can be an alternative crop for pollinators during times when other crops are not available for foraging. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Outliving one's income stream in retirement is never a good thing. Fortunately, farmers have some options to help fund retirement. I'll be back in a moment with the details. Agriculture needs the next generation. Kansas State University's College of Agriculture prepares students through applied learning, internships, and research. Learn more at ag.ksu.edu. I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm to ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. What are the options a farmer has for funding retirement? A SEP, 401k, and profit-sharing plans allow a farmer to fully deduct contributions and get tax deferral on the earnings. But when funds are withdrawn, tax will be owed. 
For persons over age 70 and a half, IRA funds can be transferred directly to a qualified charity tax-free up to $100,000 per person. This helps reduce AGI and lower taxes or Medicare premiums for high earners. A Roth IRA doesn't provide an upfront deduction, but earnings and distributions are tax-free. A health savings account is even better. With an HSA, you get a deduction for contributions, earnings are tax-free, and distributions to pay for qualified medical expenses are also not taxed. Qualified expenses include Medicare premiums or any other qualified expenses incurred before retirement if you have receipts. But you can't contribute to an HSA once you're enrolled in Medicare. So it might be a good idea to fully fund an HSA, but not take any distributions until retirement. One downside with an HSA is that if it is inherited, the recipient has one year to cash it in. If there aren't any qualified expenses to be reimbursed, income tax will result. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. And it's been one year since Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine and started a war that many thought would only last days or weeks, but has lasted now for 12 months. C.J. Miller reports on the war's impact on the agriculture market. Quite honestly, I would not be surprised 12 months from now if we're still talking about it. And that's Carl Setzer, Commodity Risk Analyst with AgriVisor. When the Russian invasion first began, commodity prices shot up significantly. But Setzer says the ag markets have since stabilized. It's definitely been muted here. And the reason being is the knee-jerk reaction was, we're not going to get any wheat. That's where 20% of the world's wheat supply comes from. Corn shut off. And now, here 12 months later, it's the opposite. Matter of fact, there is so much grain flowing out of that Black Sea region, mainly Ukraine, into the European Union They want it shut off because it's just killing their domestic market. Setzer says that the war's impact on Ukraine's corn and wheat exports weren't nearly as dire as first predicted. More of the crop got out. More was harvested last year. We're going to see some decent production this year. Now, it's not going to be back to pre-war levels, but it's going to be enough that when we add it into the rest of the global supply, it's going to be a fair amount. So... We're starting to lose that little bit of interest. But he also says that the war is still creating huge challenges for Ukraine's grain exports. Now, vessel loadings have slowed. It's an issue there. Only two and a half vessels being cleared inspections per day. Some chatter that Russia is going to shut down the corridor. I don't think Russia is going to do that. Russia is upset with the sanctions against them, and we knew they would be. But the thing is, Russia doesn't want any new sanctions either. So that's going to help keep that corridor open. Sets her adds that the ag markets have also stabilized because of the expectations that this war could last for quite some time. This could be a long, drug-out war, and when you have that, the market does tend to just kind of look away after a bit. That has started to happen here, barring some huge black swan event. And when you're dealing with countries like Russia and Ukraine, you cannot rule them out. Grain exports out of Ukraine are down nearly 29% compared to the same time last year, right before Russia's invasion. I'm C.J. Miller. Last week we mentioned keeping an eye on the upcoming Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, or PCE. The index is the Federal Reserve Board's preferred assessment of inflation. The index rose 0.6% in January above expectations. We saw how Wall Street reacted last Friday. 
The report adds to worries that the Fed will continue raising rates deeper into the year and perhaps more than just 25 basis points. The Dow ended lower for the fourth week in a row last week. The S&P 500 had its worst week since December 16th. But it's not all gloom and doom as we start the week. The University of Michigan's monthly consumer sentiment index for February came in slightly higher than expected. That's for the third month in a row. Good news or the consumer side. AgriLiquid will be at the upcoming Commodity Classic in Orlando. If you're heading to the trade show, look for them at booth number 2749-2749. By the way, AgriLiquid is celebrating 40 years in business in 2023. This is the Bottom Line Report. The first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine provides only minor support to U.S. grain exports, we think, but a declining dollar index should add support here longer term. That's our bottom line. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day and a profitable week ahead. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. 2023. It is the year Congress is expected to pass and the president to sign a new farm bill. Yet questions still abound such as will there be a farm bill this year? This is my ninth farm bill and everyone gets harder than the one before. And what might it contain based on the wish list of several farm bill stakeholders? We're going to have to do some compromise and that's going to be good and it's going to build out the farm bill coalition. I'm Rod Bain, Mary Kay Thatcher of Syngenta and Ross Hedervig of the National Farmers Union are among several joining us to look at the crafting of a new farm bill in this edition of Agriculture USA. Farm bills are legislation that must be approved every five years to continue and introduce long-range programs and policy under the oversight of the Agriculture Department. This omnibus spending bill contains several titles dealing with areas ranging from commodity programs to nutrition, conservation and rural development, trade and agricultural research. Yet to several stakeholders and longtime participants in the farm bill process, it seems the challenge for Congress to adopt and the president to sign a new farm bill into law grows more difficult with each passing cycle. Mary Kay Thatcher has participated in nine farm bills in various capacities, including her current role with Syngenta. 
She notes challenges that appear within the development of every farm bill. For the most part, farm bills, they're bipartisan. The hassles usually come in regionally. I think we just have to work to make sure that it does continue to be a bipartisan push and that everybody gets some wins and hopefully not too many people get losses. As well as the balancing act of funding farm bill programs. Will new and additional funding be earmarked? If so or not, where will funding be allocated? If you don't have any new money, then it means in order to raise the PLC rate or to update base acres, you got to take money from somewhere else. You take it from conservation, you're going to take it from crop insurance premium subsidies. Will Stafford of CHS Incorporated says the education about the farm bill and its significance has also expanded over time. This includes informing new members of Congress why a nutrition title has become increasingly essential to approve farm bills. The farm policy and the nutrition side are married together for a reason, and one does complement the other, and strong farm policy is good for their constituents for having a good, abundant, safe, plentiful, cheap food supply. He adds farm bill education is also important to Congress, to citizens, to bridge a growing urban-rural understanding gap. Every election we're seeing less and less members that have a farm background, that have a rural background, and more and more urban members. So we as an industry need to reach out to some of these members and find where we have common ground. The education process includes the input from stakeholder groups, such as those in the ag and food sector who have spent the past several months crafting their priorities regarding a new farm bill, whether from the livestock side. The climate smart incentive or practices that might be available to livestock fit into those. Milk pricing reform provides more flexibility within the federal orders. The new risk administration program is huge and it's a tool that's used by producers a lot. We need to keep that in place and enhance that program. Crop commodity organizations. Maintaining a relative safety net is probably the key point for NSP and the Farm Bill. The number one priority is to make sure we keep our crop insurance in place. An increase in the MAP and FMD funding. Specialty crops. The research title is vital to us. That's where we get our resources for genetics, additional breeding practices, so all of those programs we want to continue. Or general agriculture groups. We're going to make sure that we protect the commodity titles. We've always been big supporters of conservation competition title specific in the farm bill. That'll give farmers and ranchers more protection within the economy to make sure that there aren't anti-competitive practices going on across the industry. USDA's role in crafting farm bills has varied over time. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack says the department will serve in an advisory capacity to Congress for this farm bill. That does not mean, though, the secretary doesn't see potential within a new farm bill. We want to create a vibrant and resilient rural economy. We want to create the opportunity for farmers not just to depend on a commodity market, to be able to have three, four, five, or six different profit centers operating out of their farm. Others, like Chris Edgington of the National Corn Growers Association, believe a new farm bill will be evolutionary, meaning building upon existing policies and programs. How do we find small improvements? And how do we blend in what we're already doing on farm, whether it's in conservation or risk management. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. 
But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. GMOs? Genetically engineered? Bioengineered? What's what? Well, GMO stands for Genetically Modified Organism. It's the common term many people use for foods created through a process scientists call genetic engineering. And you'll start seeing bioengineered on some food packages to let you know the product or some of its ingredients come from GMOs. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. For today's interview segment, I chat with Martha Sanchez, a environmental liaison with the Department of Pesticide Regulation. Martha, thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. We are uh, in Monterey, California for the Activate 23 AgSafe Conference. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about DPR's involvement and why you guys are here and why this is an important event for the agricultural workforce? Yes, definitely. We're very lucky that AgSafe uh, did um, in the invitation to DPR, uh, DPR, Department of Pesticide Regulation. We definitely have to be here because we, um, you know, regulate the sales and use of pesticides. Our mission is to protect human health, which includes field workers, applicators, uh, growers, and also uh, the, the, the environment. And that's the reason we need to be here to, you know, um, provide pesticide safety training in different languages and, and network with the growers, uh, fill workers, and provide misinformation. I had an opportunity to sit in on your uh, presentation earlier today, and uh, right off the bat, you started off with a video. And what I caught from that video is um, right at the end, and I think you may have said it too, that California, throughout its you know rigorous testing, can present a clean plate for our, our consumers. So why don't you talk to me about the rigorous testing that goes into the DPR, um, from the labs to the agricultural commissioners. And you gave a number out that blew my mind. I think it was like 13,000 registered pesticides. So talk to me all about that testing process. Yes, definitely. Well, California has a robust program where we have inspectors, DPR um, inspectors, uh, scientists themselves, who go out uh, and collect uh, produce samples uh, from every areas, including farm markets. The um, et ethnic uh, stores, The you know, we collect, um, samples, um, everything, and not only from those stores, but also the ones that are coming in for, from other countries. Um, we work with, uh, with the, on the border and make sure that the products that we collect, we send it to the labs. Uh, we have two labs right now. We have one in uh, Sacramento, uh, and this is in coordination with the Department of Food and Agriculture, and another one in Santa Ana. Uh, so they, what they do, they have scientists there, so, so they analyze it to make sure that they don't have um, high residue levels of unregistered pesticides that, that are not allowed in California. Once they find if there is a, a pesticide that it's illegal to be used on that crop, then they definitely, our inspectors will go back to that, to that uh, place, uh, the supermarket, um, and will remove all all that crop from being sold to the public. And yes, DPR um, currently has over 13,000 registered pesticides, and that includes not only agricultural, but um, antimicrobials and home and garden and 
How does the DPR go about making sure that the folks who are using those um, pesticides, so the applicators, that they're doing it properly? 13,000, that's a lot. Um, And I think you mentioned that some of the pesticides that are used in, let's say, where I'm from, Tulare County, are different than that in um, Fresno County or maybe Yuba Sutter or down in San Diego. Yes, DPR, um, we have a program where we make sure that once... uh, once the products come to California and they've been approved federally, we make sure that the data being sent in uh, supports the registration. We require additional data from the manufacturers. Uh, for example, if it's going to, you know, it's because we want to make sure, like, if the product is going to be used in the Bay Area, that it's going to be drifted off to, to the oceans, that it's not going to affect our fish, our environment. So um, we analyze everything. We have entomologists, um, toxicologists, and chemists in the department who looks at everything. And, you know, it, it, it does take time. A lot of manufacturers really get upset at us because they want their product to be registered now. And no, you know, we're very thorough. We want, and we ask for more data. We want, uh, we ask to revise the, the label to add up additional precautions. And, you know, because we, uh, in the state of California, we have the strictest laws and regulations when protecting workers um, from the state level, uh, from the federal level. Um, one of the more recent uh, announcements to come out of the Department of Pesticide Regulation is um, the Sustainable Work Group, and they recently uh, announced a roadmap. Well, I'll, I'll let you tell me um, what that roadmap is about and why it was released. Yes, the roadmap came uh, from uh, a group that, uh, you know, back when we were working on chloropicrin, on changing that. Uh, so we went a step forward and had moved forward with the group and said, you know, why not um, create this uh, sustainable pest management and reduce pesticide use in California? And that's why um, there was a, a group, uh, and actually an urban group was created as well, to uh, create this roadmap. Uh, The roadmap is very detailed. We're gonna have uh, tools. We're gonna be um, um, sharing information with pesticide advisors, growers, and hopefully everybody can join our our effort on reducing pesticides uh, use in in California for for the sake of of the environment and, and and the community. And the roadmap, um, we are hoping, you know, with everybody's support and help, to have it um, accomplished by 2050. So more more information is out now. It's, it's out uh, for public to see um, and to join us. It's on DPR's website. Um, definitely reach out to us if you have more information or more concerns. But like I mentioned, there is two groups: the agricultural group, and who comes they, the group uh, the worker comes from different backgrounds so from industry to community leaders to manufacturers to um, UC system and also we have an urban group who also um, we want to reduce the the use of pesticide um, products in the urban settings. Can you speak to some of the data that's been collected has the use of pesticide um, in the state of California decreased has it kind of stayed the same Um, are folks more aware can you speak to that? Yeah, the data has been, I mean, this is something that I'm really proud at DPR. We have collected data throughout the years on everything. And one of the things that we have uh, definitely, uh, I'm really proud of is that we have, uh, we have stopped register high toxic pesticides. We are using more or less toxic uh, pesticides to control pests, because unfortunately they, they, they do exist and we keep coming and you know we have problems with those. 
but we definitely got, got away from the highly uh, toxic pesticides and we're registered the less toxics um, as well. And we do have uh, an IPM program within the department, the Integrated Pest Management Program. So, you know, and again, supporting that, you can use all these tools and you can use pesticide as a last resort. So definitely we want to make sure that everybody is safe, that we don't, we're not using these pesticides as, as much as, you know, if it's not necessary. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Cover crops can be a viable option for growers on the Central Coast navigating Ag Order 4.0. USDA research horticulturalist Eric Brennan said that one of the tips for maximizing the value of cover crops is getting seed early and planting early. Getting your seed early is going to make sure that you've got seed to plant, but then planting as early as possible in the fall is going to make sure that that cover crop can grow as fast as possible and meet the ag order regulation biomass requirements as early as possible. So our research shows that if you plant early, you can meet your biomass requirement, four and a half thousand pounds of oven dry shoot biomass per acre. And the earlier you plant, you know, from October 1st onwards, the faster you're going to meet that biomass requirement. So if you plant October 1st, it's generally going to produce the biomass in a fewer number of days than, say, if you plant it on December 1st or even November 1st. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Climate Smart Commodity Opportunities. Deputy Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation Gloria Montano-Green discusses the details of USDA Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities pilot projects and what they could offer in the way of new and expanded market opportunities. We can transform agriculture by looking to expand markets for climate smart commodities, which provides benefits to producers for the climate, while also creating economic opportunity in rural communities and agricultural communities. In September of 22, USDA announced that it was investing $3.1 billion. In September and in December, we announced our selection for the respective projects. We have over 141 selected projects for the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities effort. What we do know from the projects that we have selected is an expectation of hundreds of expanded markets and revenue streams for farmers and ranchers and commodities across the entire nation and its territories and across various agricultures ranging from traditional corn to specialty crops. We know that more than 60,000 farms will be reached, expected to be about 25 million acres of working land. We'll be looking at climate-smart production practices that include cover crop, no-till, and nutrient management. To view a list of the projects, visit USDA.gov. UC Cooperative Extension is hosting a Central Coast Wine Grape Seminar next week in Salinas. The event will begin at 1.30 in the afternoon on March 7th at the Monterey County Ag Center. Viticulture Specialist in the Department of Viticulture and Enology at UC Davis, Matthew Fidelibus, will be giving a presentation on determining nitrogen nutritional requirements of grapevines. 
That will be followed up with information for adapting the Crop Manage Irrigation and Nutrient Management Decision Support Tool for Vineyards and how to use evapotranspiration data for Crop Manage Evaluation. UC Davis plant pathology specialist Akeep Eskelin will be giving a research update on sudden vine collapse and wood diseases of grapevines, and area viticulture farm advisor Larry Bettigo will be providing an update on local vineyard research projects to finish out the event. More information on the seminar is available on the upcoming events page at agnetwest.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. The cyber attack temporarily shuts down Dole Production. Food giant Dole says it recently was hit by a cyber attack that was determined to be ransomware. Industrial Cyber says the attack disrupted the company's operations and resulted in the temporary shutdown of production plants. It temporarily halted the company's food shipments to stores. A company news release says upon learning of the incident, Dole moved quickly to contain the threat and engaged leading third-party cybersecurity experts who've been working with Dole's internal teams to secure the company's system. An internal memo on February 10th told employees that, quote, Dole Foods Company is in the midst of a cyber attack and has subsequently shut down our systems throughout North America. Two grocery stores in Texas and Mexico, contacted by CNN, said they hadn't been able to stock Dole salad kits on their shelves for days. Dole didn't go into detail about the ransomware hackers' attack methods, but did say the company contacted law enforcement. An AFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.